Good morning. Thank you for the beautiful music and the new faces. Um, let's pray. Father, we praise you that as believers we can say, I am no longer a slave of fear. Father, we praise you that you are God. You are our God. And this morning we ask that you'll just come upon this place and help us to understand your word and to know it's coming from you. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Um, before I start, I want to thank Ashley, Beth, and Nikki for stepping in last week and sharing your testimonies and, and making yourself vulnerable and um, sharing with the, with the group. Um, there, I'm told, well, I was checking, the, um, they're not on the podcast yet, but they will be. So if um, you missed them, as I did, I plan on um, listening to them on that. Okay, I recently heard some details of an event that our youth attended several weeks ago with the organization Love Life. The event and the organization is the brainchild of Justin Reeder, who is a local businessman, who learned that Charlotte, North Carolina is home to the largest abortion clinic in the entire Southeast. Uh, if you're like me, you might have expected that to be said of Atlanta or Miami or something like that, but um, no, that distinction goes to Charlotte, North Carolina, home of the Billy Graham Parkway and the Billy Graham Museum and a thousand different churches. This Bible Belt city is home to an abortion clinic that kills 150 to 200 babies a week, making abortion the leading cause of death in Charlotte. Not cancer, not heart disease, abortion. Mr. Reeder explains that when he learned those facts, God convicted him and eventually guided him to start Love Life. His desire was to help mobilize the church to stop abortion in the city of Charlotte, not by mobilizing with protests and placards, but with worship and prayer. So for 40 weeks, for 40 Saturdays, that's the amount of time that a baby is typically in the womb, they prayer walk as families in front of the clinic. They start with a time of prayer and worship, and then they walk and stand in front of the clinic, and they pray over the clinic and the people that come and the doctors and the nurses and everyone that's involved. And then they walk back and meet again for another time of prayer and worship. They do not allow any type of confrontation with the people at the abortion clinic. There are organizations that do that kind of thing, but this group is focused on praying and mentoring and supporting life. He shares that on a typical Saturday, 50 abortions will be performed but that number drops to 15 when the church shows up. He also shares that the number of abortions drop on Wednesday. That's the day that all the people participating in the walk are called to fast and pray. So every Wednesday prior to the Saturday walk, the churches involved are called to fast and pray. So uh, prayer and fasting come first and then the walk. When Mr. Reader speaks to churches to invite them and encourage their involvement, he reminds them of something. He reminds them that if we do nothing, babies die. And who knows 
whether we are here in Charlotte for such a time as this. He uses a famous line from the book of Esther, and it raises a good question. In this matter, and others like it, what exactly are we responsible for? I mean, if God is sovereign in the way that we've talked in the past weeks, then does it matter what we do? If God is in control of the dice, then when it comes to our actions and our choices, what difference does it make? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Esther chapter 3? Esther chapter 3, we're going to pick up at verse 15. 3.15 says this, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Okay, this is where we left off several weeks ago, so we probably need a quick recap of the previous episodes. All right, last week, last lesson, we learned that Mordecai had discovered a plot to kill the king, and he reported it to Esther, who then reported it to the king. But then something very unusual happened, and that was he was not rewarded. Okay, instead, immediately after that, we read about this new guy, Haman, and he comes onto the scene, and he is promoted. And then we learned that he was an Agagite, an enemy of the Jews. And so Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And that made Haman furious. And so he began to plot not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all of the Jews. Young, old, women, children, everybody. He wants to wipe them off the face of the planet. Okay, this was to be a global ethnic cleansing. And when he sought the king's permission, the king agreed. Okay? That's where we left off. And it brings us to something that we're going to see in the book of Esther. And here's our first point. Number one, God is sovereign over the hearts and plans of man. All right, last time we said that God was sovereign over the roll of the dice. This time we're going to see that God is sovereign over the hearts and plans of man. Now I have a verse on your paper. I could have put several, but we'll focus on this one. It says, Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. All right, the king, no. God controls the roll of the dice. God controls the hearts of man. Now, in this verse, it says the king's heart. Humanly speaking, nobody has more control than the king from an earthly perspective. Uh, if anyone was to have earthly power and control, it was him. But God makes very clear. He says, make no mistake about it. His heart will do what I want it to do. God is sovereign over the roll of the dice. God is sovereign over the hearts of man. Okay, but now wait a minute. If that is true then doesn't that make us just a bunch of puppets or robots? And how do you explain evil? How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile all the evil things that people do and then tell me that God is in control and that he's good? Or that God is in control and he's a God of love? 
those would be very good questions. So that brings us to another definition that we need to know. And so next on your paper, number two, compatibility. You could also write compatibilism, all right? It consists of two doctrines that saturate the Bible. Right now, sometimes preachers will give this different names, but this is one of uh, the more common ones. Compatibilism, made up of two doctrines, and I have those on your paper. A, God is sovereign over all things, and B, man is responsible for his actions. God is sovereign, man is responsible. You could also write accountable into that uh, blank. All right, I want to give you an example. On October 1st, Stephen Paddock, perched in a fancy Las Vegas hotel suite, fired round after round at a crowd of country music fans 32 stories below. Compatibility would teach that God was completely sovereign over every bullet. Those bullets were under the sovereign control of God, but Stephen Paddock was responsible. Okay, sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. God is sovereign, man is responsible, man is accountable. Now, some of you might be wondering, how do you make sense of that? How do you explain that? I would explain it the only way I know how. And that is on every page of the Bible, we see both. We see both. We see the sovereignty of God. We see the accountability of man. They saturate the Bible. Those two doctrines, and they are in harmony. Okay? And we're going to see it in the book of Esther. So let's pick up our story where Esther chapter 4, verse 1. 4 1 says this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, Mordecai, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, not only is there a law that is decreeing that his people are to be annihilated, but it was his failure or refusal to bow down that has brought it all on. All right, now, in his defense, Haman's plot is dramatically out of proportion with the offense. Right. But still, Mordecai, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he's taken to the city streets, which tells us this is public. He's very public about it. He's wailing and crying bitterly. And not just Mordecai, we're told that as the news spread, it's the response of the Jews in every province. Okay, We're told that Mordecai does not go beyond the entrance to the king's gate in his sackcloth and ashes because they weren't allowed. Okay, listen, unlike in the United States... You were not allowed to protest or shout obscenities or be sad and grumble in the presence of your king. Okay? Now, uh, verse 4. Verse 4 says this. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, 
She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. All right, Esther, she gets news. Mordecai is out in the streets, and he's got on sackcloth. And so she sends him a change of clothes. She wants him out of that sackcloth. Now, at this point, she's deeply distressed, but she doesn't know why he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, nor has she asked him yet. All right, verse 5. Then Esther calls for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who has been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Okay, now she has learned what this was and why it was. Now she's trying to get to the bottom of things. Okay, it would appear that before this, she didn't have a clue of what was going on on the other side of the palace walls. Okay, verse 6. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Okay, Mordecai's got proof. All right, this is not just an overreaction on his part. All right, this is not just some simple misunderstanding. He sends her the details and a copy of the written decree. And then we find out why. He doesn't want her to just know about it. He wants her to go to the king and beg favor. And remember... The author has been telling us up to this point what their relationship has been like. And, and, and he's made a point to tell us that in the past, Mordecai instructs her or commands her, and she does what he says. All right, let's see what she does. Verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. All right, so you've got Mordecai. Mordecai says, you need to go to the king. And then Esther sends back, "Uh, no, that's a really bad idea. And then she proceeds to give him three reasons. She says, first of all, his affections for me have cooled. He hasn't asked to see me in 30 days. And then there's this other little problem. Uh, He doesn't know I'm Jewish. Remember, you told me not to tell him about that. And then lastly, here's the big one. It's something that everybody knows about, and that is there is a law. And I can't just, and everybody knows it, that I just can't drop in on the king uninvited. He has to summon me. He has to invite me. The law, which was well known, was that if a person showed up uninvited, he was to be put to death unless the king extended his golden scepter. And it's said that the man, these kings actually had guards that stood beside them with swords, and one was supposedly even had an axe for this very purpose to to guard the king from intruders, uninvited intruders. Now, also, we want to remember, this is a king that got rid of his first wife at, at the drop of a hat. 
and he's sleeping with other women, and if he should decide he wants to change out queens for somebody newer and younger, this would be a real easy way to go about it. Esther has known favor in the past, but she has no reason to think the king will show her favor now. All right, verse 12. And they told Mordecai and Esther had said, told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay, Mordecai tells her, do not think that you will escape. If you go to the king, there is at least a chance that he will hold out the scepter. But if you don't go at all, you are doomed. Right? Now, some say he is explaining to her that her Jewishness will be discovered. Okay? And she will not escape. Some say that he is warning her of the judgment she'll experience if she stands by and does nothing. In other words, they say this is a veiled threat. Okay? And it could be. It's, it's one of those ambiguous statements in the book of Esther. Now, in any event, Mordecai understands something about Jewish history. And that is that he knows that God is not going to allow the annihilation of his people. He knows that God is not going to allow the seed of the serpent to destroy and annihilate the, the people of God. If Esther doesn't help, deliverance will come in another form, but it will come. All right, and then he says his most famous line in the book. He says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's reminding her, you were an unknown Jewish orphan that was selected from among women from 127 provinces to be the queen of the Persian Empire. Do you think that was accidental? Do you think that there's maybe more to this? than ointments and spices and beauty treatments? Do you think that maybe the details of your life have been so arranged so that you would be a Jewish queen at the exact time that your people need you? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. All right, Esther tells him, go gather the Jews that are in the city of Susa and fast. And she and her maidens are going to fast. And then she says her most famous line, and if I perish, I perish. Now, some are going to teach that she's being very brave and expressing a robust faith here with that line. Others say, uh, no, that's not the case. All right, apparently in Hebrew, she is acknowledging that her death is almost inevitable. For instance, I'm going to give you an example. Let's say a doctor says to a person, okay, if you have this operation, there is this slight chance that you'll survive. If you don't have the operation, you're going to die. 
right? Apparently, that's the scenario, that's the choice that Esther is being given, and Esther basically says, well, I guess I'm going to have the, the operation, okay? All right, the chapter ends with Mordecai obeying Esther's instruction. Okay, what can we learn about the sovereignty of God in this chapter? There's a few things that we want to discuss. All right, next on your handout, number three. God will sovereignly use desperate situations to woo his people to return to him. Is that not on there? Oh, woo. W-O-O. Yeah, sorry. Woo. Okay, we don't want to read the book of Esther and miss this. Okay, now I want you to think back of that first week. First week, we said that we have reason to wonder about the spiritual condition of the Jews. We have reason to wonder why they're not back in Israel, in their home. Okay, and we said um, there's probably a number of reasons why that is, and there probably were some good ones. But the main explanation that is typically given is that they had been, they were backslidden, that they had been Persianized. All right, now, and I, I want to explain something. When I use that expression, Persianized, not talking about modern-day Persians or modern-day Iranians. The Persian Empire at the time of Esther was made up of 127 different provinces and dozens of people groups, perhaps hundreds of people groups, and it stretched across the globe. So when I'm referring to being Persianized or speak of the Persian culture, it would be similar to if, say, someone would use the expression Western secular culture. You, you know, using a term, it's broad, and it's referring to a culture that is in opposition to a biblical one. All right? Now, in the book of Esther, it's generally said that the Jews have become secularized. They've become entrenched in the culture. They were blending in. They were enjoying the Persian culture. And they either didn't see the need for God and his law, or perhaps they were just distracted. They were busy with life, they, and they didn't have the desire. Let me ask you, how entrenched in the culture are you? In the book of Esther, it's likely that many of them were either in a backslidden, sta backslidden state or an unbelieving one. Okay? And what do we see God do? He puts them in a desperate situation to woo them back. He puts them in a desperate situation intended to get their attention and draw them to himself. I want you to think for a minute. What happens when you hear about a shooting or maybe an earthquake or a hurricane or a fire or a flood, something with maybe a large death toll? What do those things impress on you, upon you? Or should they impress upon you? Maybe that life is totally unpredictable and that it can change in a moment. Maybe that death comes to people of all ages and all walks of life. Maybe that it's inevitable. Maybe that there is no guarantee for tomorrow and now is the time to be reconciled with God. 
You see, events like that are intended to say, turn to God, look, run to God, be reconciled with God. God will use desperate situations to woo his people and call them to himself. Here's our next point. God typically fulfills his sovereign work in our lives by means of our decisions. Last time, we said that God was sovereign over the roll of the dice. God is in control of every molecule. Now, there might be a temptation when we understand that to think, well, then what difference does it make what I do? I mean, if everything is already predetermined, what does it matter what I do? And there's actually a word for that philosophy, and I have it on your paper. It is, number five, fatalism. Fatalism. It is a doctrine that events are fixed in advance so that human beings are powerless to change them. Now, I would probably write next to this, unbiblical. Now, an atheist might say that fate is determining things. They might say, que sera, sera. That's, that's fatalism. You might even have someone that puts a religious spin on it. I can remember years ago, after a youth function that was terribly attended, somebody was nearby, they were trying to comfort, and they said, well, God's in control. I guess this is what he wanted. God brought everyone here that he wanted. Okay, the implication was, that our actions or our lack of actions uh, uh, had nothing to do with the outcome. That's fatalism. All right, now, Muslims, they are often accused of fatalism. All right, I was reading about a crane accident. This crane collapsed in Saudi Arabia. It kills 118 people, injures hundreds. And the crane company comes out, and it says it was an act of God. Well. The Saudi government, thankfully, had a compatible view, and they came back and said, yes, but your crane company is responsible and suspended. Your crane company is responsible to make safe choices and take the necessary precautions. You don't just get to go around and do whatever you want to do or fail to do what you should do and then say, it was God's will. Okay? That's fatalism. All right, if Mordecai had been a fatalist, this story would have been very different. The example of scripture gave us would be very different. Uh, that Mordecai, if he was a fatalist, he would have said, listen, Esther, it doesn't matter if you go to the king. It doesn't matter if we fast. Everything's already been predetermined. Everybody just go around and keep doing what they were doing. All right, but that's not the case. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't teach that, and um, we see it here. Mordecai understands that somehow... Our choices have real meaning and our actions have consequence. All through the Bible, we're going to see that God is sovereign and man is responsible for his actions and his decisions and his choices. And somehow, mysteriously, God will use those choices and decisions to work out his sovereign will. All right, so what do we see Mordecai do? Okay, we read that he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, what's that all about? We've um, not really talked about this before, but it is something that we see throughout the Old Testament, and it's uh, a big element in this story. And so, first of all, I have this on your paper. Sackcloth is a coarse fabric made from goat hair, 
And so to wear something like that was extremely uncomfortable. Okay, so they would put that on, and then they would add to that ashes, which were a sign of desolation and ruin. And then both of those were typically accompanied with fasting, like we see here in this passage. So we've talked about fasting before. There's a, um, a podcast where we go over all the basics, so it might be a good thing to review. But when you read about people fasting in the Old Testament, it, it means they're going without food. And in some cases, they're going without water. Now, um, like we see here in the book of Esther. Usually, it's accompanied by prayer. Now, we don't read that book. We don't read that word in the book of Esther, but that doesn't mean it's not taking place. Um, and also, unlike uh, fasting, privately, uh, sackcloth and ashes would have had a more public uh, feel to it. So here's the next on your paper. Number six, sackcloth and ashes were used as an outward sign of one's inward condition. Right? So it's something that you did outwardly to express something that's going on inwardly. All right, so what's the inward condition? In other words, why did people put on sackcloth and ashes? Usually they were worn in the Bible to express a number of different things, and I have this on your paper, number seven. First of all, it was a sign of personal heartfelt loss. You could also write mourning in there. Let's say someone in the Bible dies and the people, they're suffering from great heartbreak and they're grieving. You will often see them display that and by putting on sackcloth and ashes. All right, number two, it was a sign of national mourning. All right, it's a, it's a response to a national crisis. And we see that example in the book of Esther. All right, number three, a prayer for deliverance. You needed, you, you needed delivered. You needed rescued. And so you'd put on... Uh, sackcloth and ashes. That could be, by the way, for a national or a personal deliverance. All right, number four, it was a sign of repentance from sin. Okay, it's a way of expressing sorrow over sin. And we see that in the book of Jonah. All right, uh, number, and then number five, it was a sign of humility. All right, if you were a servant in the Bible and you wanted to approach a king for mercy, you would put on sackcloth and ashes. You would want to display your humility. Maybe you would be approaching a prophet and you wanted to express that your humility. You wanted to make known to them that you were coming to them humbly. You would put on sackcloth and ashes. Okay, now take a look at your list. What is a biblical example for someone experiencing great loss or a national crisis? or maybe a local crisis. Say your city has the largest abortion clinic in the southeast. Or maybe you have a husband or child that's involved in something evil and enslaving, like porn. Or maybe you're involved in something enslaving and addictive. What should you do if you're facing a decision and you're desperate for guidance or deliverance? or you're lost and backslidden, and you realize that you need to be reconciled with God. What kind of example does the Bible give us? Answer, sackcloth, ashes, and fasting. Now, how do we apply this? Am I recommending that you put on a scratchy shirt and uncomfortable clothes and maybe go without makeup and maybe throw on some dirt? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think the point here 
is not to copy the outward expression, but to understand and pursue what's going on the inside. And so um, sackcloth, ashes, they were an outward expression of what's going on on the inside. And what was that? Mourning, sorrow, repentance over sin, humility. They were desperately seeking God. They were on their face. They were making themselves low. They're crying out to God. You know, I will often talk to people going through serious things. Maybe, maybe they have a really important decision that they're trying to make, and God just doesn't seem to be showing them what it is they need to do. Or maybe they have a prodigal child that's just breaking their heart, or a prodigal husband. Or maybe they have just some really serious marriage problems or there is some other type of great need. Usually, if they ask for advice, my starting place is always pretty similar to what we see here in the book of Esther. My advice is get on your face before God. Humble yourself. Pray fast. Take a step back from the world. I um, almost always, that, that would be, that's an outward expression of what's going on on the inside. I almost always uh, recommend fasting for some amount of time from TV and the internet. And it's not because those are necessarily bad things <laughs> on their own. But it's a way of getting the voices of the world out of your head so that you can concentrate on the things of God. You see, it's really hard to humble yourself, to make yourself low, to cry out to God and surf the web at the same time. They don't go together. Sackcloth, ashes, fasting. Brings us to our next point, number eight. God will use even the morally questionable decisions and the messy complexities of our lives to work out his sovereign purposes. All right, we've said. We have reason to question the spiritual temperature of the Jewish nation in this book. We have reason to question some of the stuff that these so-called godly people do throughout this book. And yet, God will somehow use those things to work out his sovereign purposes. Let me ask you, aren't you glad that God is not dependent on you getting every decision right and making perfect choices for him to be able to work all things together for his glory and the good of his people? Aren't you glad that God isn't dependent on your spiritual temperature? to work things to his glory and the good of his people. Now, aren't you dependent that he's not depend that he's not aren't you glad he's not dependent on your faithfulness? He is faithful when we are unfaithful. Now, when you understand a point like this, point like number 8, are then we to think well then I'm not going to worry about my choices. 
I'm not going to worry about my decisions because God is sovereign and he can make use of my mistakes. In fact, I may even go out and do something fun and crazy and allow myself the chance to make some bad decisions because apparently God can use them for good. Answer, may it never be. May it never be. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? What's the answer to that? No, no. The fact that God uses morally questionable decisions and messy complexities to work all things together for his glory and the good of his people is evidence of his mercy and grace. I wonder if there's anyone here that needs to be reminded of mercy and grace. You know, I have three wonderful children that love and serve Jesus. And do you know what that's evidence of? That is evidence that God will use even the morally questionable decisions and the messy complexities of a mother's life to work things together for his glory and the good of his people. God worked in the lives of my children in spite of their mother. That's good news. You see, when we read a truth like this, it's not to encourage us to sin. It's encourage us to be bold and take risk, be risk-taking in our obedience and to grow in grace. All right, next, let's look back at verse 4. Verse 4 said this. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to a tender, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Okay, we said earlier, at first Esther sends Mordecai a change of clothing without asking him any questions. All right, remember, the city's in confusion the city's in chaos, and the Jews are mourning, they're fasting, they're weeping, they're lamenting. But according to verse 5, Esther seems to be clueless about what's going on in the city. All right, now, um, now in her defense, no one was allowed to be on the, si the king's gate in sackcloth. You weren't allowed to be mourning or sad at the king's gate or in the king's presence. It could be that this applied to the queen as well. And um, we know that she was kept in seclusion from the public. So to be fair... Um, we don't know how available the news was to her. All right, but notice something. She ordered the eunuch to learn what this was and why it was. When she attempts to get the information, she finds out. She gets it. So who's to say maybe she could have been more informed? Who knows? It's one of those um, ambiguous things. All right, what's my point? Here's my point. No one could blame you if you didn't want to deal with the bad news that's going on in the world around you. I cannot tell you how many times I hear Christians say that they have just quit listening to the news because it's just too distressing. I agree. No one could blame you if you wanted to live like Esther, isolated from the messy news of the kingdom or the messy news of your local school or of your local politics or of your local abortion clinic. No one could blame you. If you wanted to be treated like a queen and not be bothered with the current affairs that are sad and depressing, 
Nobody could blame you if you wanted to make a rule that no bad news was allowed at your gate or at your kitchen table. Or if you wanted to take your family away and just keep them isolated from all the mess. Nobody could blame you. As I was preparing these lessons over the summer, it seemed as if there was one terrorist attack after another. Every day there would be a picture of some country uh, getting their warships ready. I would read the news and wonder where the next bomb would go off or where the next natural disaster was going to hit. Listen, nobody could blame you. If you don't want to ask questions, sometimes it's easier not to know, to not think about it, to just send a change of clothing. But who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. When I was starting my family, it was the Reagan years. And things were not like this. He started off his time in office by brokering the release of the American hostages from Iran. And then, sometime later, he told the Soviet leaders, tear down this wall, and the famous Berlin Wall came down. Things were very different. I was listening and heard a commentator on the news recently that said, thanks to social media and the internet, terrorism has been able to grow exponentially. That means that you live and are raising children at a time when terrorism is growing exponentially. Now that's terrifying. But could it be that you have come to be a woman trying to live a godly life and cultivate a godly home during a time where terrorism is growing exponentially and it's scary and it's dangerous and it's distressing but could it be that you have come to be at this place and at this time by the very design of God and that he has some purpose for you in it? Could it be that you have been made queen or mother or wife or nurse or teacher or student and placed in the middle of your kingdom for such a time as this? Can I answer that for you? Yes. Yes. Maybe it is time we stopped the hand-wringing and being anxious and fearful and worried and stressed out and consider that we are here at this place at this time by the very providence of God and that somehow there is a way to glorify him in it. Here's our last point, number nine. The sovereignty of God is never an excuse to be uninvolved or uninformed. Let's pray. Father, my, my prayer is that we'll just be women that are less fearful. 
because we know that we're here by the very design of God. And help us to understand the things that you would have us to do and the way that we should respond in a way that makes your name great. Father, we ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.